0: Mark chapter one, verses 14 through 20, I'll read and pray and we'll get started. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with their hired servants and followed him." Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you that you are the God who calls us to follow. Lord, there are so many uh, authority figures and, and religions that call us to serve, that call us, to to submit, that call us to uh, all of these things to earn our salvation. But Jesus, you call us to these things, yes. But first and foremost, you call us to be with you. You call us to follow you, to be your disciples. And so God, today I pray for us, for those who are here who know you, for those who are here who do not know you, that we would all leave this place knowing and following Jesus following you into your kingdom. Lord, teach us today. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, in the last few years, professional baseball has seen some insanely ridiculous contracts and salaries. If you're a baseball fan, you know what I'm talking about. If you're not a baseball fan, we're talking hundreds of millions of dollars to play a game. And most of these contracts, except for a few, uh, most of these big money players actually left the team that gave them the big break to go play someplace else. See, team loyalty takes a back seat to cash, right? And this isn't the only loyalty issue affecting sports. Teams, fans of teams are even known to boo their own team when their team is underperforming. Team loyalty goes out the window if we don't like the way they're playing. Now these might seem silly examples, but our culture has a loyalty problem. It has a significant loyalty problem. Divorce culture and infidelity, backstabbing in business relationships, gossip in the church. All of these are evidence of conflicting motives and competing loyalties in our lives. And so our supreme loyalty in life by default is ourselves, we are loyal, to ourselves first and foremost. And so our marriage vows take a backseat to our happiness. Our bottom line is priority over contractual obligation and our feelings of importance and being in the know are more significant, more important than protecting a brother or sister in Christ. And so the world has a loyalty problem. And as much as we think we are committed to certain things or people or causes, all of our loyalties find themselves in a hierarchy. And whatever is our supreme loyalty, whatever is at the pinnacle of the pyramid, whatever is being supported by all of our other allegiances is actually not a loyalty at all. It's an object of worship. That is what we worship, what we give supreme worth to. That's what the word worship comes from. It comes from an old English word, worthship. It is declaring supreme worth of something. And so our supreme loyalty is actually an object of worship. And our passage today shows us what happens when our allegiances encounter the kingdom of God in Jesus Christ. See, the kingdom of God is one of the most significant themes in all of scripture. The most helpful way to think of the kingdom of God is that the kingdom of God is God's rule over God's people in God's place. The kingdom of God is God's rule over God's people in God's place. And we see this thread beginning all the way back in creation. God is king and he creates all things by his royal edict. Just by speaking them into existence, they happen. Right? And he makes all things through his word and he dwells with his people in the garden. But the humans rebel against God as king. They set themselves up as the authority. And so they are removed from his presence and his place. They're removed from his presence in Eden. And so then again, we see the kingdom take shape in Israel. God wanted to restore his kingdom and reconcile all people to himself on earth. And so he chooses Abraham. He chooses the nation of Israel to be his vessel, to carry out his kingdom purposes on earth. He was to be their God and they were to be his people. And he ruled over them in the promised land of Israel. God's rule over God's people in God's place. But Israel rebelled against God as their king and they served false gods. And so they were removed from his presence in the temple and from his presence in the land. But eventually, after the exile, God would bring his people back into the land and they rebuilt the temple where God's presence was supposed to dwell. They rebuild the temple, they dedicate it, and then something amazing happens. Something shocking happens. You see, when God's people were wandering in the wilderness and God told them to build the tabernacle, they built the tabernacle, they dedicated the tabernacle, and the glory of God filled the temple with power and majesty and beauty. Smoke just filled the tabernacle. And then when they brought the Ark of the Covenant to, to Jerusalem and they built the temple, when Solomon built the temple, they dedicated the temple, and then the glory of God filled the temple. And so here they come out of exile, they come back to the land, they rebuild the temple, they dedicate the temple, and then nothing happens. The presence of God in glory, the manifest presence of God was not there. God had brought his people back to his place, but they were still under foreign rule. They waited for the day when God would restore his kingdom rule over Israel in the promised land. And so the prophets told of the day at the end of time when God himself would return to his people and reign as king, not just in Israel, but over all the earth. And I learned something this week that I'd never seen before. In Jeremiah sixteen sixteen, as God is telling Jeremiah of the promised day when he would once again restore Israel and establish his kingdom on earth, God tells Jeremiah, I will send fishers and hunters to seek out the people and to bring them back. This is the context in which Jesus calls the disciples to be fishers of men. They are to bring God's people back into the restored kingdom. And so you see the kingdom of God is a central theme It is a primary theme throughout all of scripture and the story of Israel. And so it is also the centerpiece of Jesus' teaching and his identity. Everything that Jesus did and taught. If you want to see a good uh, illustration of the difference between the gospel of Mark and the gospel of Matthew, Matthew summarizes Jesus' preaching ministry in three chapters. The Sermon on the Mount is three chapters and Mark does it in a verse, one verse. And yet he leaves nothing out because everything that Matthew is doing over three chapters is about the kingdom. And Mark just says, yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to get to other things. He came preaching the gospel of the kingdom. He came preaching the kingdom. All of the detail and all of the application in Jesus' ministry is summarized here. His announcement that the kingdom of God has come. Jesus says the kingdom of God is at hand. Now in the original language, this word that is translated at hand is translated elsewhere as drawn near. And so drawing near is something that priests and worshipers would do. The priests would draw near God's presence in the temple to offer sacrifices and worshipers would draw near to God's presence in the temple. But here in Jesus, God himself draws near to the people. The kingdom has drawn near in Jesus. And so after waiting for the glory of God to one day fill the temple and and again, here we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus. That God is once again present with his people and this is good news. This is gospel. The presence of God's kingdom is good news. God has come to his people. One of my favorite uh, Disney movies as a kid uh, was never like the popular ones. Uh, my favorite one was Robin Hood. Okay, Robin Hood was one of my favorite Disney movies of all time. And if you remember the story of Robin Hood, whether it's the Disney movie or one of the many other retellings of the story of Robin Hood, uh, you have King Richard away on crusade and his brother Prince John is on the throne. Prince John is not king but he is acting as king. And as acting king, he taxes the people uh, incredibly, oppresses the people, and the people are suffering under this false king. But King Richard returns, and he puts his brother in his place. And honestly, that's what we expect of God. When God's kingdom comes, we expect that God is going to put our enemies in their place. The Israelites expected God's kingdom to come and put Rome in their place. So imagine their shock when Jesus says the kingdom of God is at hand. You repent and believe in the gospel. See, this is what, Israel did not expect, Rome should repent. Rome should turn around and run. But this would only change the context of God's people. And Jesus wants to change their hearts. See, if we're honest, we expect God to come into our lives and make everything easy again. We want God to come into our lives and make everything the way we want it to restore our kingdoms, to restore our happiness, to restore our comfort and our ease in life. But Jesus proclaims that the kingdom is here. And instead of following it up with telling Rome to get out, he tells the people to repent and believe. Because even if our context changes, we will adapt. See, humans are like coyotes. You guys ever studied coyotes? Coyotes are crazy. Coyotes are one of the most adaptable creatures on the planet. They have figured out how to live almost in any habitat, including downtown Los Angeles. There is a pack of coyotes living in LA and it's hilarious. From the hills, to the deserts, to the streets. Coyotes have figured out how to survive and they do it by watching out for number one. They do it for watching out for themselves and the pack. And so humans are incredibly adaptable. Our circumstances might change. Our contexts might change. But if our hearts don't change, then our kingdom adapts to find itself at home in whatever context we are in. We may modify our behaviors depending on context, but like coyotes, we're always our default is to watch out for ourselves. So Jesus doesn't go to to Caesar and tell the Romans to turn around and run. That would only change their context. Instead, he tells the people to repent and believe the gospel because he wants to change their heart, to change their motivations, to change their loyalties. Now, We talked about repentance a little bit ago last Sunday. It's not just turning from sin, but it is returning to God. But here, the the idea of repentance is fleshed out a little bit more and it's understood in the context of the now present kingdom of God. It's not only turning from the bad things we do and doing good, it's turning from our disordered loyalties and giving Jesus our full allegiance. It is as Jesus says, seeking first the kingdom of God and recognizing that God will reorder our priorities around him because our priorities have been out of whack since the garden. And as well-intentioned as any of us are, our default is to seek our own will, our own desires, and essentially to build our own kingdoms. And maybe you're thinking, I don't have a kingdom. I wish I had a kingdom. You keep telling me about my kingdom, but where is it? Right? You have a kingdom. Your kingdom is your rule over your life and anyone else who would want to find their way into your place. That is your kingdom. This doesn't mean you're an oppressive tyrant. Maybe it does, but it doesn't necessitate that you are an oppressive tyrant. It just means that we like to watch out for ourselves and prioritize ourselves and seek our own good. These aren't necessarily bad things, but when they become our highest priority... And when they begin to affect, not just, not just affect negatively, not just make people upset or frustrated or things like that, but when we actively seek our own good at the expense of others or at the expense of following Jesus, then they become idols. We've placed a false God on the throne of our lives. That false God is ourselves we sit on the throne. And so Jesus says that God's kingdom is now here. And if we intend to receive it, we must abandon our own kingdoms to turn from what we are building for ourselves and return to God's rule, God's reign over us in our lives and in all the earth. And so there may come a day Maybe you've experienced this day. There will come a day when God's kingdom will come against your own, where God's kingdom will come into conflict with your, with your, your, your loyalty to some other thing, your career, your reputation, your romantic relationship, your financial security, your country, your family, or your Sunday plans. The kingdom of God will come into conflict with those things. But at the end of the day, it's not these other things that the kingdom of God is coming against. They're just the battlegrounds where we are at war with God's kingdom. And the way we turn from our kingdoms and follow Jesus into his kingdom, Jesus says, is through repentance and faith. To repent and to believe are two sides of the same coin. These are inseparable. We do not have one without the other. See, the word that gets translated here, believe, is translated elsewhere as not only believe, not only faith, but also as trust. Now, these three words in English have huge differences in our understanding, but it's one word in the Greek. It's the word pistis. It means believe or to have faith or to trust. And so to believe is not just to ascend to some propositional truths, to affirm that the gospel is true, or, or it, it, means, it means to trust in it or to, uh, to put it another way, to entrust yourself to it. It's not just this new thing that you know. It's a thing that you are committed to and entrusting yourself to. Think about a bungee jumper, right? A bungee jumper can know lots of things about the bungee. He can, he can believe that it's strong enough. He can believe that it is the proper length. But at the end of the day, he either has to jump and entrust himself to the system or walk away. This is what it means to believe the gospel. Not just to know, oh, I know about bungees. I know about Jesus. I know about the gospel. I know what he came to do. I know what he accomplished, but then to jump and to entrust yourself to him. This is what it means to believe, not to ascend to some propositional truths, but to entrust yourself to Jesus. At the end of the day, we are going to either have to entrust ourselves to Jesus or walk away. We have to turn from building our own kingdoms and entrust ourselves to Jesus as our King. And the sign of this kind of repentance and faith is following Jesus. This is what it means to be a disciple. Discipleship is a lifelong process of leaving our kingdoms to follow Jesus into his. Discipleship isn't one decision that you made a long time ago. Discipleship is a lifelong process of learning to turn away from our kingdoms and follow Jesus into his own. Now, we don't use the word discipleship in our culture very often outside of religious contexts, but it is not a purely religious term. A disciple is a learner. A disciple is someone who follows another person's way of life in order to embody their teaching and eventually live like they lived. Today, social media culture thrives on discipleship culture. You follow someone by clicking a button, And then you observe the life that they want you to think that they are living. So that you will shop where they shop, boycott where they boycott, and always live in a sense of insecurity that you actually can't measure up to what they're doing. This is a backwards discipleship culture. One of the most successful ad campaigns of all time is Be Like Mike. An entire generation of people who wanted to be like Michael Jordan, not me. I wanted to be like Wayne, which doesn't sound as cool, but I wanted to be like Wayne Gretzky. (laughs) I read his autobiography at a really young age and Wayne Gretzky is naturally right-handed, but he learned to play hockey left-handed because he wanted to be different. And at six years old, he was so good with his opposite hand that he was playing with teenagers. And the leagues that he was playing in didn't have jerseys his size. So he would play left-handed and his stick would get caught in his jersey. And so he started tucking in the right side of his jersey. And so me, not knowing the whole story as a kid, I'm right-handed, I still tucked in the right side of my jersey because I wanted to be like Wayne. Who doesn't want to be like the great one? And so I would watch and be like, oh, he tucks in his jersey. I'm going to tuck in my jersey so I can play hockey like Wayne Gretzky. I didn't play hockey like Wayne Gretzky. Barely learned how to ice skate. And so discipleship is about following. It's about being with someone, learning from them and embodying their way of life in order to become like them. And so as disciples of King Jesus, he calls us not only to serve him, but he calls us to follow him. And so when we come to faith in Christ, there's, lots of things to get excited about. You've been made a new creation we talked about a few weeks ago. Your your sins are forgiven. Uh, you've, You've been brought into the family of God, the church. There's lots to get excited about, but the greatest blessing of coming to Jesus is the invitation to simply be with him. Before anything else is required, Jesus invites us to simply be with him. And we know him through spending time with him because as we spend time with him, we learn from him. You have this experience too. When you make a friend and you spend significant time with that person, you not only tell inside jokes, but you start talking like one another. You start using similar words and references. You start building a history together. And through that, you know one another and begin, Begin to imitate them. And so we are with Jesus in order to learn from him. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Now, a yoke was a piece of wood used to keep two oxen together to pull a cart. And when a young ox was learning how to pull a cart, it would be yoked with an older, more experienced ox. And as it walked with that older, more experienced ox, it learned how to pull a cart itself. And so it would have to do this before it could ever pull a cart by itself. Jesus wants us to be yoked with him so that we can walk with him and learn his way of life. And the more that we are with him and learning from him, then the more we become like him. Ultimately disciples of Jesus are to become like Jesus. We talked about this new identity that we have in Christ a few weeks ago, but it's through discipleship that we actually become by practice who we have been made by grace. By grace, Jesus makes you a new identity, says you are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. And discipleship is the active process in life of actually becoming who Jesus says that you are. This is what discipleship means. It's through discipleship that we actually become who we are. Discipleship isn't about the decisions that we make in certain situations. It's about who we are becoming over time. It is a lifelong process, becoming like Jesus, more and more like Jesus every day and in every way. It's following Jesus in all of life. But this kind of discipleship comes with a cost. This cost of discipleship is demonstrated in our passage by what Simon and Andrew and James and John had to do. In order to follow Jesus, there was something they had to leave behind. In their situation, it was their career, their way of life, their their uh, their way of providing for themselves, their security, their financial future. Um, it was it was it was their it was their careers. They were fishermen, and they left the boats. In James and John's situation, they too left their careers, but were specifically told that they also left their father. Their father would have been the primary source of their identity. So discipleship in this situation, when Jesus calls them to follow him, they are losing everything. Now we need to be careful because this passage is descriptive and not prescriptive. This is a very important biblical study tool. It is descriptive and not prescriptive. That means that Mark is describing something that did take place, not prescribing something that must take place. That means when you become a Christian, you don't go to your parents and say, peace and just like disappear from their lives or go to your boss and say, can't work here anymore. Maybe, maybe that has to happen. The, the job part, not the parent part. Maybe there's things that you're going to have to leave, but at the very least, those things will have to be held with open hands to allow God to reprioritize those, the, the place of those things in our lives. We have to open our hands and stop clinging to our livelihood, stop clinging to our reputations and our identities and allow Jesus to reprioritize these things. I had a conversation uh, with my oldest son a few years ago, and we were talking about what it means to belong to Jesus. And I said, Asher, if I have a toy, and that toy belongs to me, that means I can do whatever I want with that toy. And I said, but if I give that toy to you, now it's your toy, what does that mean? And he said, it means I can do whatever I want with it. I said, absolutely. So, said, right now, our lives belong to us. What does that mean? He says, it means I can do whatever I want with my life. I said, absolutely. Not under this roof, no. Uh, so said, it means I can do whatever I want with it. I said, absolutely. But Jesus calls us to give our lives to him. What does that mean? And he said, it means he can ask me to do anything. And I said, how does that make you feel? And he said, scared. And I said, why? And he said, because I don't know what he's going to ask me to do. We don't know what he's going to ask us to do. Realistically, in any church, there's three kinds of people. There are those who know that they do not know Jesus. There are those who know that they know Jesus. And there are those that think they know Jesus they've never let go of their kingdoms and they're only trying to add Jesus to their already full lives in his famous book the cost of discipleship Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls this cheap grace Bonhoeffer says cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance baptism without church discipline Communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will go and sell all he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy which the merchants will sell uh, to, to buy which the merchants will sell at all his goods. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciples leave his nets and follow him. Costly grace is costly because it calls us to follow and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life and it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. it is costly because it condemns sin and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it cost God the life of His Son. Ye were bought at a price, and what it has cost God, much, uh, what has cost God much, cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon His Son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered Him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. Grace is gift. It is free to receive. But it cost Jesus everything to offer it to us. Our king sacrificed everything to prove his love for us. In Jesus, the kingdom of God is here. And anyone who would follow Jesus must entrust themselves to him by leaving their kingdoms, by leaving the kingdoms that we are building and choosing to align ourselves with his. And this is not easy. Look, don't look to the person who's been following Jesus their whole life and makes following Jesus look easy and think I'm doing it wrong. Look, if you're following Jesus, you're doing it right. Just keep following. Yeah, you're going to trip. You're going to fall. You're going to make a mess of things. That's fine. God covers that. He forgives that. This is a lifelong process. Realistically, all of us even those of us who are following Jesus, we close our eyes, we turn our heads, and all of a sudden we find ourselves in our own kingdoms again. We're like that kid from the show Stranger Things. Stranger Things fans, right? He's living between two parallel universes, right? He, everything looks normal, but then all of a sudden he closes his eyes and he flashes to the upside down evil world. It's this parallel universe, we are like that. We close our eyes, we turn our heads and all of a sudden everything looks the same except I'm back on the throne. And so therefore everything is very different. Our kingdoms are difficult to leave because we like comfort, we like security. We like having control over our our own identity and reputations. We like controlling our environments. But we can never walk away from our kingdoms until we experience the full weight of God's love and his grace impacts our heart. Because here's the beauty. The kingdom of God is gospel. It is good news. This is the grace of the gospel of God. That even when we are disloyal to Jesus, Jesus is loyal to you. Your king is loyal to you and demonstrated his loyalty by going to the cross. When we should have died, he took that in our place. We can follow him because he is loyal to us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If we have received grace when we're walking away from Jesus with all of our lives, how much more will we know that we will receive grace when we stumble along the way? If you're here and you're torn between my kingdom or God's kingdom, recognize that Jesus has always been faithful, that Jesus is always loyal, that Jesus will never let you down, that he calls you not to grovel, but to follow to be with him, to learn from him, to become like him. He gave away everything to gain you. He lost everything to find you. And all that he requires is that we turn from our sin. We turn from prioritizing ourselves and we follow Jesus. He invites us not into uh, obedience only but to intimacy. Our obedience flows from our intimacy with Jesus. Our actions flow from our near with Jesus. Our ministry flows from our intimacy with Jesus. He doesn't call us to do a bunch of things. He calls us to be with him. And he transforms us so that we can become like him and not just do the things that he does, but actually want the things that he wants to desire the things of his kingdom, to find our home in his kingdom, to find that we have left our kingdom in the past and live holy and completely and joyfully in the kingdom of Jesus. Jesus never asks anything of you that he hasn't already given you. He's given you himself and he never asks you to turn from anything that he isn't willing to supply beyond your wildest imaginations. In that conversation with my son, I said, yes, it is scary. We don't know what he's going to ask of us, but we do know what he was willing to give. And because we know what Jesus was willing to give for us to follow him, we know that he is good. We know that he is good and anything that he asks of us will be for our good. Anything that he asks of us will be for his glory and our good. If he was willing to lay down his life to save ours, we can give him our lives and know that we are in good hands. It might be scary, but we can have courage. Friends, take courage courage. Jesus Christ is asking you today to follow him. And as a church, as a community, let's follow him together today. Jesus, we declare that you are the only one worth following. God, all else will lead us astray. God, I confess that when I find myself following my own kingdom, it's actually not my kingdom that I'm following, but something significantly more sinister. God, that we are pawns in a significantly more sinister system of rebellion and rebellious kingdom. And the moment we believe, the moment we turn from that, our eyes are open and we recognize, Jesus, that your kingdom gives life when all else brings death. God, I pray for anyone here who is struggling with uh, whether they want to believe or struggling with whether or not they actually do believe struggling with that, 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 uh, that uh, assurance of their salvation. God, I pray that you would remind them right in this moment. God, right in this moment that they cannot look at their own lives for their assurance or rejection of their salvation, but they look to the life of Jesus that even though we are disloyal, even though we are often unfaithful, Jesus, you are faithful to us. We are saved by your faithfulness. We are saved by your works, not our own. And so God, whether we're in our lives uh, uh, following you in fear or following you with joy and celebration, God, I pray that our fear would be turned to joy as we continue to follow. God, as the Israelites walked through the Red Sea and must have been freaked out of their minds, they got to the other side. God, oftentimes following you is scary, but we can be confident in this. You are gonna take us to the other side. We will see salvation in your kingdom, regardless of what we find in our lives. God, do this in us. Do this for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.